Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz, and we just wrapped up stage eight of the Tour de France. Um, is the tour is the tour over? Is <laughs> that is that the greatest one week stage race we've we've ever seen? Is that is the Tour de France done? The tour is never over. It's not over. We're gonna get into why in a little bit. We've got an excellent crew for you today. Abby, how are you? Hello, yes. Good. Welcome back. Thank you. Dane? Yes? You didn't say hi, you didn't welcome me back. I mean, what, what do I say to that? <laughs> I've been doing that every day, and I think it's fun to see what you, what you come back with. Uh, fair enough. And then we've got our special guest. Welcome back, Nathan Haas. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. I uh, just watched Crazy Stage while the bike race, and... I'd like to talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Okay. Before we get into today's stage, Dane, what are we learning about Continental today? Well, uh, Abby noted yesterday that she has spotted Continental around and about this year's tour. And she's right. Conti has a long relationship with the tour, not only with the tires of teams taking part, but in many other ways. Conti is, in fact, one of the tour's main partners this year, the Red Skoda Enyaq EV used by Christian Prudhomme and his team is clad in Conti tires, specifically developed for EVs, as are the other support vehicles used by the tour organization, having the right tires on your car, SUV, EV, motorbike, or bicycle is super important, and having tires that are developed and precision-made in Germany can only be a good thing. So, whether you're using GP5000s, eco-contacts, or sport contacts, you know you're using tires that are trusted by... The Tour de France. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring the podcast. Nailed it, Dane. Normally I'd say you have a face for radio, but I would say you also have a voice for radio. Thank you, That Nathan. was like one-take wonder over there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into today's stage. So, first stage in the Alps. Uh... We were kind of expecting some fireworks today, and we got them. We got, well, Tadej Pogacar grabbing this race by the scruff of the neck, whipping it around, chucking it over a ledge somewhere, and he's in the yellow jersey now by a lot. Dane, where do we stand? Yeah, things things kind of got a little bit out of hand today. I think Tadej Pogacar really really took control of the race. If he hadn't already, I mean, we, we'd kind of talked about Pogacar being the clear favorite even after, um, like, five days of the race. But really today, in the early goings, Garen Thomas dropped off the back. And that, in and of itself, was kind of a news story. Because Thomas, you know, at the start of the stage, she was still within two minutes of Tadej Pogacar. But uh, over the course of the day, it became clear that it wasn't just going to be Thomas that was kind of seeing his GC hopes fade. It was kind of going to be everybody. Uh, so eventually, Matthew Vanderpool in yellow dropped off the back. And then Wout Van Aert eventually went with him. Uh, Pogacar with his UAE team was doing a lot of the work uh, which there was a moment today where you could kind of see how this could have been a really entertaining tour this could have been a, a close battle because Pogacar kind of ran out of teammates they, they did all this work to drop Vanderpool and then Pogacar was looking kind of isolated but then Pogacar himself put in a devastating attack that Richard Carapaz followed for about a minute and then dropped off of and then Pogacar went and uh well, he picked up like four minutes on most of his main rivals, which if he didn't already have enough of a clear lead in this race as the, the top favorite, 
it's pretty it's pretty strong now. I mean, you don't usually see the the overall favorite having like a four and a half minute lead at least to most of his main rivals, and that's what he got today. So unless something happens with a crash or he gets sick. I mean, he, he really needs to have a really, really, really bad day with a lot of things going wrong for anything to change at this point. And we're only eight days into the Tour de France. He went up the, the Col de la Colombière in the big ring. He was in his big ring the whole way up. Granted, he was in like the big ring in the, you know, 28 or whatever on the back. But still, went up the, <laughs> the Colombière in the big ring. I, I just, I, he was going so much faster than everybody else on course today it was it was pretty stunning yeah when i saw that you know the screen looked down at that group set and i was like wow he's in the big chain ring it must be so nice to be that good at something (laughs) says the professional cyclist like it's it's just a whole nother level but i'm like professionally good at something and he's professionally really good at something you know he's like we're already kind of the like zero point zero one percent just to be in the world tour and then there's like a zero point zero one percent of that group and yeah it just must be so delicious to stand up 30 k's to go and be like yeah you know i was getting pretty frustrated these other teams didn't really play a part today and you know what watch this it was pretty wild i i you know wrote a story yesterday basically saying that um you know, if there was if there was going to be a way to beat Pogacar, it was going to be basically using the weakness of his team somewhere in like a transition stage. And I still maintain that if if he does lose this race, it's going to be then, right? Because we saw today that he doesn't he doesn't really need them when it's mountainous. When when it's when the race is hard, he's fine. They actually did they did an okay job in the lead up. I mean, they got rid of the yellow jersey, got rid of Vanderpool. Uh, Formolo and McNulty both had pretty good rides into the base of the Col de Rome, but then he was alone, and he didn't he didn't need them. He had you know thirty k to go, and as soon as Formolo popped off, he accelerated, and that was the bike race. That that was it. Uh, I I don't know what else to say about that ride today. It was just is something that we haven't seen in years. Like the ability to take that much time over the course of two climbs from a ways out with just nobody behind even sort of mounting a a considerable chase. There was no big team behind capable of attempting to work together and pull everybody back. It was just sort of mano a mano from 30K out. And Pogacar was, you know, 5% better than everybody else in the bike race. Thinking back to the 2013 tour when Chris Froome took a huge lead in the early goings of that race and it seemed over at that point i think it was uh the stage to x trois de Ma, stage like seven or eight and uh he was way up there with richie port was behind him and then the peloton was behind them but even that wasn't as dominant as this like this is it's a whole another level of dominant and it's so early in the race yet it's like i think pogacar may have read some of the articles about uh you know, well, maybe Wout van Aert can, can hang up there with him. Or, or maybe uh, maybe the Jumbo Visma's team strength will be able to. And he was like, nah, that's not going to happen. And here's why. And I'm going to take five minutes on everybody. I mean, if he took the same gap every mountain stage between now and Paris, he would win this bike race by like 23 minutes. 
Yep. And he could. It seems it's like possible. it's like, is anything gonna, is anything going to stop him from doing that other than him saying, yeah, I'm good now. I, I'll take it easy. It seems like he could just keep doing that. Yeah. And he doesn't have a weak point anymore. You know, last year we sort of said, oh, you know, maybe Roglic has the advantage and Garen Thomas has the advantage in the time trials. And then we saw he turned around and won the time trial on a non-climbing course. So it's it's hard to see him losing anywhere without something really, you know, horrible occurring. No, for me, it's um, you know, I I, I think I'd go back on what you said that we haven't seen it in years, Kaylee. I, I think one of my favorite moments in the last decade was when Froome won the Giro with that long out attack. You know, that that was phenomenal. But the Tour de France, as we know, is the premier of all of the races, and the best guys turn up to the Tour in best shape. But you know, for me, the biggest um, sort of heartbreak that I have this year is, and, and I can't believe I'm saying this after so many years of Ineos's dominance, my heartbreak is that they lost so many guys early on because I think the most exciting way this race could have panned out was by sending guys up the road who are all close to time. Um, so now we do have like a Mano Imano from, you know, these teams for the GC. And it's just a real shame that we don't have that really cool, sort of structure set up where Pogacar was actually getting attacked from lots of ends and not just watching one guy. So I think, I think that would have been the only way this tour could have gone differently. But um, as it stands, I don't see him losing. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think in retrospect, those first couple days, uh, you know, all the crashes we saw in, in the first couple stages, that's, that's going to be beyond Pogacar being phenomenal that's going to be the defining feature of this Tour de France. When we go back and we do the, you know, the post analysis, when we're sitting in Paris and we're wondering how did we get here, that's going to be a huge part of it because not only did those riders go down, but then, you know, all of the motivations change for their teams, for the whole Peloton really. And you end up with, you know, like the second you, you have Garrett Thomas and, and Roglic not in the bike race anymore, not in the GC picture anymore, that changes how the entire Tour de France unfolds, right? And I think that, yeah, we're basically going to, we're going to rue that, right? We're going to, we're going to always wonder what could have been if those riders had not hit the deck in the first couple days. Uh, and it, it kind of brings it back to the Tour de France really has a, vested interest and i like i mean a financial interest in in trying to keep those first couple stages safe because what they've done to themselves this year with all those crashes which i think some of them you can definitely you can point at at route decisions narrow roads lots of corners right in those first couple stages you can point to route decisions and say okay well maybe that's the reason why we had so many crashes some crashes are inevitable but why so many crashes and how has that affected essentially the Tour de France as a product, as a interesting bike race to watch for for three full weeks as opposed to just one weekend? And I think that yeah, they kind of shut themselves in the foot on that front. And it wouldn't surprise me if they make some adjustments as a result because they're now seeing oh, like yeah, there's there's a lot of just sort of bad luck in this particular year, but maybe we need to make sure that our GC contenders are at least getting to the Alps before uh, hitting the deck super hard. Yeah, today on the Col de Rome, after, right after Wafanarka dropped, there were like four Ineos riders in that group. And you, you, could, you, know, you could just see how, if they were actually on close time with Pogatra, you could see, well, maybe they would be able to try something here. This, this could have been a day where they could have you know, gone long, although they probably would have had to attack even before that, considering how strong Pogatra was today. But 
you could see you could see why that could have been interesting if this hadn't all gone sideways with all these crashes and you know it wasn't just Thomas it was also Port and Gegenhardt and it was just uh, all of a sudden that that what could have been a very interesting fork was not very interesting anymore and there's no egg and Bernal here which makes me sad I, I don't know we don't know if he is on that level but remember when he won the Tour de France and we were all like oh well okay we just found the next the you know the winner of the next eight Tours de France right he's so much better than everybody else if he can get back to that kind of level, I do think that both of them are are of a similar level. Maybe even Remco Venepol at some point. I mean, people keep talking about him as this crazy phenom. We haven't fully seen it yet. But I think that's the other thing that I'm kind of bummed about is that I've said it before. Not bummed about, annoyed <laughs> that they sent him to the Giro and not the Tour de France. Because uh, who knows? Who knows? We might have had a, a tighter race at the top and, and a, you know, a more distinct Ineos leader, right? I mean, Pogachar does have a weakness. His his weakness is his team, right? That's what everyone keeps saying. So there's some there's there is weakness there. It's not like yes, at the moment we're looking at the G C and we're thinking, Okay, he's he's walked away with this race, it's over. But he's still a human. He's not a robot. Yeah, there's gotta be a weakness. But there. I think uh you know, if you see what he did today, it's not like the guys in that next G C group are not phenoms. And he made them look like kids. And then the guys who were in the breakaway were not like C or B grade riders of teams. That was the gangbangers for teams that were basically sending those riders there for GC that lost time, you know, in that first week from crashes. And he just passed them and was just like eating into that climb. If, if it was another K long, he would, he would have gone solo down that climb and won the stage. So, you know, for me, I think as well, for everyone else sort of, you know, seeing that, they're just like, well, you know, I wasn't going to win the Tour de France. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Tom's just finished. Oh, my God. Fuck. I've been refreshing, <laughs> refreshing, refreshing. Like, please tell me he, he's still in the race. Dude, Sorry. Rebecca just was, came across the line. That was unrelated. Tom, no, Tom, Tom's a little tired from yesterday. He's no longer 18th on GC, that's Damn. for sure. Ugh, all right. Is he, is he fighting for the Mile Sabla now? Oh, he's blown past it. He didn't even stop <laughs> to look at it. No. I mean, so while Von Art is only... A minute forty-eight down on Pogacar at the moment. Uh, do it. He maybe can't win, but he could end up on the podium at the end of this. He did a really nice job of holding on today. I mean, he was by himself for a lot of the stage, and I think you can expect a rider like him to do okay by himself because he's such an excellent time trialist. But there was a moment when he got dropped, where I just kind of figured, oh, yeah, he's going to be out of this entirely. But he's now he's still second overall. He's still way ahead of a lot of other riders on GC. He didn't come in that far behind the likes of Richard Carpas and company. And so he now, he continues to have almost a three minute gap to Alexei Lutsenko and, and Rigoberto Uran. So I, I don't really know what to expect from Wafan Art. I mean, clearly he's not the best in the high mountains, but he can also limit his losses quite well. If only we had some cobblestones coming to Carcassonne or something <laughs> like that, you know, then we, <laughs> we could talk about his chances of taking time back. We should talk about the stage winner at some point as well. Uh, Dylan Toons was amazing today. His post-race interview was quite emotional. He lost his grandfather just about a week ahead of the Tour de France. Actually, let's just listen. It was a great interview. Until now, I had a, a difficult year, like aiming for uh, some uh, goals, but never came close. So finally, uh, I can celebrate. Could you feel that Pogacar was coming back? Did you have the times of today uh, in your in your ear? Yeah, I had it uh, for the for the last climb, and uh, 
In the top, uh, I hear it like one minute 15 or something, or one minute five, I don't remember exactly. But uh, yeah, I was thinking, okay, uh, if I can make the top uh, with one minute, should be okay for the, for the descent. You, you asked your wife to, to marry you at La Planche des Belles Filles. What are you going to do in Le Grand Bornand? <laughs> I don't know. It was more or less an honor to my, to my granddad who died just before the tour. So that's why I was pointing up. He, he died just like we had the funeral one week before. I had like a few days before I had to go to the tour. So it was a bit emotional for me this this last 10k and he must be very proud of you i hope so i think so yeah the other thing that's worth mentioning with tunes's victory is i'm sure you guys saw it the water bottle right like at at, at 20 well, like 20 meters to go someone dropped a water bottle some fan dropped a water bottle and it was one of those little it wasn't a, a, a bead on it wasn't a, a a racer's water bottle it was a little vitel plastic bottle of water that that they hand out at the tour de france um which are very slippery and if he had hit that it, quite likely that he would have gone down uh, the reason i mention it is that water bottle is a reminder that the tour de france is never over until we actually get to the finish line right i mean this is a guy who had just spent however many kilometers solo off the front getting chased down by the best bike rider in the race he makes it to the finish line he could have gone down literally 20 meters from the finish line from an errant water bottle. So I do think that as as a piece of context, as a thing to keep in mind as we as we head into two more weeks of Tour de France with a uh, a strong leader, a leader who is seems very unlikely to lose it, lose the yellow jersey in a physical capacity. The tour is never over. Correct, but. I've, I've always sort of subscribed to a philosophy of being a cycling fan where I'm not so interested in the Matthew Van der Poels and the Pogacars because it just does come easy to them. And, and I'm not saying they don't work super hard, but, you know, they've sort of been blessed with this infinite genetic ability to just be pure bike racers. And that's, that's super badass in its own right. But I really love when I see someone that's just got grit win a bike race like Tunes today. And for me, Tunes was just the standout of the race. You know, he, he had the balls and patience to actually let Woods go, to stay with that next group, to try to conserve energy for one last firework. And he timed it perfectly. Um, but the other person that I think is just totally badass in this race is Vingegaard. And I don't know if you saw today, he, was, he had a crash and was just covered in blood again. And now he's sitting fifth overall. And it kind of shows the depth and quality of um, Jumbo is the fact that they went there with one sole leader and currently they have second and fifth on GC. It's going to be interesting to see how Van Aert plays this next two weeks out. Um, you know, we already saw in Torino that he can play a GC card. It's just whether or not he can do that into that third week because, you know, when you kind of look at the physiology of a rider like him, that third week, he's going to be going very anaerobic compared to a lot of these climbers that are more aerobic. So he's getting a lot more um, muscle damage purely just muscle and neurological damage compared to the others. But when you see a guy like Vingegaard sitting in fifth right now, who is there as sort of like, you know, the fourth or fifth last man to go on the climbs, kind of it's kind of mind-blowing to see how teams can pick talent and young talent this well. Yeah, I, I feel like at this moment where, where, where Pogacar seems to have the race kind of on lockdown, the, the big question is, 
can someone else be position themselves to, to kind of take the lead should something happen? And it does seem like Yumbo is best positioned to do that with obviously with Lafonart, but Vingegaard looks really good, and he's been, you know, he he's shown in the past in in smaller races that he can climb with the very best, uh, second at the Basque Country, behind his own teammate Primoz Roglic, and still really young at 24, so it's hard to say like what he can really do. I mean, this is only his second Grand Tour so far, uh, but um, all signs point to him being a legit. Grand Tour talent, so I think Yumbo. That I mean, they've talked about him being their leader, and not Van Aert for obvious reasons. I mean, Van Aert's never been top ten at a Grand Tour. He came here to hunt stages ahead of the Olympics, but it does seem like there's a real, you know, a real chance that Vingegaard could end up on the podium, uh, and then maybe, you know, maybe better if something were to happen to Tate Pogacar. <laughs> I feel like we're all a bit of a loss for words today. Like, I mean, we just watched one of the most <clears throat> dominant sort of GC performances of the last couple decades, I think. And we're about to watch... Well, I mean, it's, his, it's, it's Pogacar's race now, right? Like, it, he, could, he could take more time every single time to go uphill or not. He might just be like, well, I got five minutes. Or maybe he'll pull it out to seven or eight, just leave it there, you know? Uh, I think that makes it a difficult race to talk about because normally we come on here and we talk tactics and we talk, you know, we, we try to an, uh, analyze what's happening but how do you analyze just one guy is so much stronger than everybody else? I think if you're a fan looking for reasons to you know, keep watching, there are some potential really tricky non-mountain stages coming up. Um, they're, they're relatively flat. Uh, the stage uh, 13 from Nîmes to Carcassonne uh, is an area where there are serious crosswinds. And um, ditto for the next day. And you've got a rider in Wat van Aert who is clearly pretty proficient in riding in, in, in crosswinds and a team, Jumbo Visma, that is quite proficient in taking advantage of those kinds of things. And I think with UAE, we saw today, they've got, you know, they've got a fine team. I think, Kayla, you, you said it pretty well in your in your um, story yesterday. It's not like they have a bad team. They just, they don't have like a top two team in this race. They're just kind of a decent team. And if you don't have a great team in a serious crosswind situation when Yumbo Visma goes to the front and Dakota Quickstep decides to join them because they can maybe get a stage win out of it, there can be some real challenges there. And I, and I think Pogacar is going gonna, is gonna to find that he is going to have to fight on every kind of terrain in this race. Uh, and, and that hopefully will, will keep this interesting through the next week or so. I don't know if it's going to stay interesting in the Pyrenees because I kind of expect him to keep getting five minutes on everybody per day there. But maybe something interesting will happen before then. I think one of the other elements, I mean, just to add to that, you know, Ineos has Luke Rowe, and Luke Rowe is the scariest person to be racing against as a GC rider from another team if there's crosswinds, because he can single-handedly put his GC rider into a group of 10 that gets minutes up the roads. So I would definitely say that UAE does not have a Luke Rowe. He's kind of one of a kind. Um, and Carapaz is a very sneaky little bike rider who knows how to glue himself onto a wheel. So... That's one element that I think could be pretty fun to watch. But I think the other kind of component to this race is that there are so many quality GC riders that did lose time, which kind of says something else, which is to say there's all this firepower and kind of full batteries because there's a lot of stages where they can actually chill out now because they don't have that nervousness. And if there's just one stage that kicks off from kilometer zero, and we've seen it happen in the Dauphiné, uh, especially the year that Andrew Talansky won. We've seen it in Volta Catalunya when Dan Martin won. 
is that it just comes to a point where it's no longer controllable by the GC team. They become so isolated, and Pogacar can't follow everything. And it could just be one of these riders that are sort of sitting in, you know, fourth through 14th that are at that sort of four to eight minute mark that could just slip up the road and all of a sudden make this time and no one's going to help Pogacar. If the right politics are up the road, no one is going to help UAE. And, you know, the saying, the closer you fly to the sun, the more you get burned. And right now he's flying pretty close to the sun in terms of politics in that race. You know, no one, no one will help UAE. And I think, Dane, you're completely correct in saying that there is a lot of parkour that could really throw this race into chaos. And um, I think as cycling fans, if, if that's sort of what we're trying to get at here to say, you know, what's left for us to enjoy in this race, there's a damn lot to enjoy because people are going to throw down. It's the Tour de France. And as Abby says, Tour is never over. It, it all depends on how the rest of the GC riders decide to approach this, right? If they start to race for second or third, then we're going to end up with a pretty mediocre Tour de France, I think. If they start to just throw caution to the wind and say, we're just going to go for it, we're going to go for every single crosswind, we're going to try to catch Pogacar out in descents, we're going to try to do everything, which if, we, if, we're, if we're believing Dave Brailsford and Ineos and what they've been saying for the last year, they sounds like they will try to do, we could actually end up with a pretty fantastic Tour de France because the, the important moments of this tour over the next two weeks are not going to come at the top of Mont Ventoux or Luzardiden or something like that. Because we already, I think, know what happens in those moments. It's all the little tiny moments in between where so many different things could happen. And it's going to come down to, you know, really clever racing, tactical racing, a smart DS that's paying attention, that can identify a moment when Pogacar is potentially isolated. As Nathan said, nobody is going to help him. And that's a really important point is that if he does lose his team, which he's done every stage, basically, so far in this bike race, you know, you, you, have a, you have a situation where maybe he alone is chasing a group of four or five up the road, and even Pogacar cannot, cannot compete with four or five super strong riders. I think it's sort of an interesting thing that we can do here is actually break down who's in that top 15 range right now. And obviously Pogacar is the, the target. And then, you know, I think we can safely say that Van Aert's not going to win the Tour de France. Um, it's just going to be super exciting to see what he does. But you have Lutsenko, who is an animal. That guy, he won the, the, the TT uh, recently in the Dauphiné. Um, so he's in killer form. And then you've got Rigoberto Oran, who I think is one of the most dangerous riders to look at because I don't think Rigo is going to do anything crazy and risk it. He's more like a sniper. He just sits there waiting, waiting, waiting. And just when that weak point arrives, that's when he strikes and he makes critical time at that point. But then we've got guys like Carapaz, who we've already seen, is just not scared to throw down. He was the only one that actually tried to follow Pogacar. So I wouldn't be surprised if Ineos tried to do some sort of creative breakaway entry and have someone come back and he goes across. And hopefully that can be timed at the right time. Enric Mas is another guy who has just so much panache. If, if we remember the Vuelta that he was second, he won that last stage um, into Andorra. And it kind of just threw the whole race into chaos and everyone was sort of freaking out and Yates did very well to kind of limit the loss to still win the Vuelta. So Mas is also super exciting. But then we've got the French flair in Mr. Godou. And the one thing about the French that we've always seen at the Tour, especially with guys like Bardet, is that they just send it. They're fearless. And they kind of don't care if they're sixth if they're trying to win. 
you know, they're happy to be top 10. But really, these guys, they, they all want to win the Tour de France or really like cement their way in there. But they like to do it with style. Um, and then you have uh, Guillaume Martin, who made some pretty serious time today. And I think we haven't seen the best of Guillaume at this tour yet. So I think he's really going to play some cool cards later in the later in the in the tour. And I think if we can see anything from the way he raced last year, he's, he races with balls. Yeah, it's 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 worth noting that sort of barring Pogacar, you have something like twelve or thirteen riders within about four minutes of each other, uh, because you know you go from from third place, which is Litsenko, at four thirty eight down, all the way down to fifteenth, while poles at eight fifty one. Right, so you've got this huge chunk of riders that are all quite close to each other, and again, that could go one of two directions. You could have guys who are like, "I want seventh, and I'm going to ride for seventh, and I'm going to defend seventh." That would be unfortunate, I think, for the viewing public. But you could also very much go the other direction, where you say, you know, you have a bunch of riders who are like, "I don't care about seventh, I don't care about ninth, I'm going to go for it." And it, it, even if I don't overhaul Pogacar, even if I don't take the yellow jersey, maybe I move myself up to third right now because third is very much within within shooting distance, right? So I'm, I'm hoping that the, the, the lure of the podium itself is, is maybe enough to get everybody within that top 10 or 15 to, to just start throwing stuff at the wall and just see what happens. Yeah, I think the, the hope is that people won't ride like Movistar Road on stage seven, which is to say trying to defend their bid for seventh or whatever. And and let, you know, let, letting UAE chase things down or not chasing them down at all, basically. Because if... If riders start worrying about whether they're going to be able to hold on to their fifth place, that's going to be a real problem for the excitement of this race. Uh, but if they if they embrace the fact that you know somebody who's behind them a little bit in the top ten being up the road might actually help them because it means that UAE has to chase, that's what we're going to maybe actually see things stay interesting. Let's just hope people don't. Let's just hope Movistar wants to see how high up in the GC Enric Moss can get rather than trying to defend his current eighth spot. In the, in the overall standings. Are they leading the team competition? Who's leading the team competition? Uh, they are not. The Bahrain team, which has had a great race so far, is leading the team competition. Movistar's actually quite a ways down there. I feel like we're trying to maintain positivity here. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, we're just... I wouldn't say we're grasping at, grasping at straws, but again, we just watched one of the most dominant GC performances of, of the last couple of decades. It is difficult to foresee a two weeks... Uh, that does not see the continuation of that dominance. Dominance in and of itself can be pretty entertaining. Yeah, that is worth mentioning as well. Hey, do you want to turn this negative? <laughs> Can we just go down like Tuesday line here? I think one super negative today from my side is um, I was super sad to see Alaphilippe lose so much time. Yeah, that was a bummer. I mean, where where is he now? He's basically he's gone. Yeah. 24th, 1851 down, Al Philippe now. Um, d- couldn't, couldn't get his raincoat off when, uh, when the attacks went down. And that, you know, you can't be attacking with a raincoat. So I'm assuming that's where the 18 minutes come from. It's just leaving his raincoat on. <laughs> Rookie mistake. <laughs> Do you know what competition is heating up? Is the Mayo Sabla. It's true. And I was wrong. Tom's didn't blow by the Mayo Sabla. He's 36, 28 down. He could still take it tomorrow. I think he's pacing it actually quite well. I'm going to tell him that he should take it tomorrow. Current Maya Sabla is... Luca Mezgec. Yes. With Mickey Schar. Very Sorry, close. did I say it wrong? Slovenians are now not only leading the yellow jersey competition, 
they are also leading the Mayo Sable. I mean, come on. So much dominance in this race. Can I ask a very stupid question? What is that jersey? <laughs> uh, we, this is a jersey that, that um, Rupert and I made up in a tour a couple years ago. Rupert Guinness. And uh, it's it's the sand jersey, and it's named after an hourglass. And it is the rider closest to one hour behind reverse prices right rules so you have to be you have to be at least an hour so an hour and one second is the best time you could possibly have for the mile sable and what we've found is actually it's, it's kind of a fun one to keep track of because it tends to be quite good riders that end up with it at the end of the race because because an hour back is usually like 20th at the tour de france right it's pretty high up and so yeah we've had some we've had some great winners of it over the years george bennett lost it on the champs Elysees two years ago that was an embarrassing moment for George. Uh, turns out he was he was trying to he was trying to pull a lead out, um, and then got yeah, dropped. Yeah, because that in itself makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> got dropped on the Champs and ended up losing it. I can't remember who ended up taking it, but um, now we had an interview with him on the Champs, and he was just he was really broken up about it. He was really uh, quite distraught that he contemplated lost retirement. He was like, I don't know why I would keep going after this loss. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So Lawrence like Plus. Lawrence de Plus is what is who took it from him on the final day of the race there. Brutal. Brutal. Lawrence de Plus, the sniper, snagging the Mile Sable. I think this is we're basically all in on the Mile Sable for the next two weeks. I think this is um where most of our editorial resources are going to be directed, the Mile Sable, as well as the polka dot jersey. I think those are the two things that we're going to pay attention to. I mean, after today, like Pogacha could take the polka dots too. It's really it's like the He's green jersey is like the only one that- yeah. You complain about the this you two you two in your sprint jersey point jersey thing that you have between the two of you. The polka dot jersey is way worse. It whoever <laughs> wins the tour wins the polka dot jersey every single year. That's that's not the case. It's it's quite that's often some somebody who gets basically the always the case. No, Richard Rank never won the Tour de France. Pogacar won it last year, but Roman Bardet took it uh, the year before that. I think he's taken it twice, right? At the moment, at the moment, Watt Poles is in the lead for the polka dot jersey, followed by Mike Woods, and Pogacar is in fifth with only ten points. Okay, I know that I know that Mike was going for GC at the beginning of this tour, but I think he should go all in on polka dots. Mike Woods is a guy who could pull off polka dots. Uh, Nothing looks so good with that nose as polka dots. (laughs) <laughs> he could definitely do the polka dots i, I think he's got the you know, he's got that sprint kick too to kind of nab those points on the smaller climbs when you're in the breakaway with like eight other guys and you got to sprint for those lower points so I, I think he's a he's a pretty good shot for that actually he was made for polka dots he was should we uh should we move on from today's Probably. bicycle race stage okay <laughs> before <laughs> Nathan looks like he's he doesn't know what he got himself into. No, I, to be honest, I just feel a little disappointed um, for this show because the last episode I was on was just magical, and we had so much to talk about. And I think everyone just wanted to kind of share their emotions and their feelings. And I think today we're just all a bit nonchalant about it all. We're just like, oh, yeah. Well, that was insane. <laughs> And uh, moving on might be, might be but that's I mean, all the faces, Abby, right now. It's just a little bit like we're still digesting yeah. what we saw and, um, yeah, just, you know, worried well, about 
what we're going to talk about on any other podcast because maybe it's just the same thing. If you guys thought that the tour ended today and you're you're questioning life for the next two weeks, the Giro Rosa today or the Giro Done today. Tell us what happened. Oh, well, live coverage started with about 8K to go, maybe less. Um, but but they didn't actually have, like, live coverage of the bicycle race. They had some finish line camera. They had an interview with a policeman all in Italian. Um, <laughs> they had some real weird shots. And then they finally showed the race. Um, and, and Anna Vanderbregen just rode away from everybody. Uh, Anna Vanderbregen rode away from everyone. <laughs> And she took the pink jersey by, like, a minute and 22 seconds-ish. There's no GC results yet that I can see. But she won the stage by a minute and 22 seconds. The only thing more depressing than the fact that Anna Vandenbrenken is now leading the Giro Done with eight stages remaining um, by over a minute is that her teammates are in second and third. <laughs> Ashley Woman Passio is in second, and Demi Vollering is in third at a minute 51. So, um... What happened to Trek today? It's SD Works World, and we're just living in it right now. Mm. <laughs> you know, Abby, I just want to start off by saying how pissed off I am that they're getting 10Ks of coverage. I think it's totally bullshit. I mean, in theory, it's better than the Vuelta a Burgos, which gave us three kilometers of coverage on the final day. <laughs> I mean, you know, we saw at Amstel Gold, the women's race actually had more people watching than the men's. It's yeah, not like yeah. there isn't a, uh, an appetite for this racing. And then, you know, they're prioritizing having time on the podium and interviews with policemen. For me, it's just a shame because the racing is pretty baller. And, um, and, and I think in so many ways, I just don't think TTTs belong in women's racing yet might be a contentious mm-hmm. thing to say, but when the splits can be that big from stage one, for me, it's it's something that just takes away from the integrity of the other teams that might not have the financial ability to do all the tech work, to do the training camps, the team time trial. And then also it's just like the depth of riders in these teams. You know, the ones that can pay minimum, well, let's call it men's world tour minimum salary to all the riders, there is a huge difference in the professionalism of those riders versus the team that just have one or two riders at that salary. So, you know, I think if we want to take it, um, I'm not going to use mano a mano, that's a bad expression here, um, fi mano al fi mano, <laughs> or dona vi dona. You mean mujer uh, I, I, I want to see the best of all the women's teams be actually able to fight out the GC. And when I saw the TTT results, kind of my heart dropped a little bit. And I was I, I was just sort of having the thought that TTTs maybe aren't the best thing in a women's Jura. I mean, I think that if there were more TTTs throughout the year, then it would be better. Because the problem is that they don't get to do them very often. So they 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 have no practice unless they have a camp. But even then, you're right about the equipment. But I think... For the riders, they love the TTT. I talked yesterday about how the TTT is like a dying art form, but the riders, I, myself as a rider, loves it. All three of our diarists yesterday, uh, you didn't hear Hannah Barnes, but all three of the riders who send me audio diaries talked about how much they love the TTT. So it's a huge bummer. You're right that the the equipment and the teams, there's such a massive disparity in pay on the teams that they can't. They they just can't compete with SD Works, but Trek Segafredo won the TTT and they are nowhere in the top ten. They're they're I, nowhere. 
Yeah, I mean that was my like where I'm look, just looking at the results here. Um, I didn't catch the coverage, if you can call it that. Uh, what what, what, what ha- like do we do? Do we have we talked to Ruth? Do we know what happened to Trek? I mean, they came with a strong team, and they literally, you know, tenth place today was Juliet Labou, uh from Team DSM at three twenty nine down, which means the top Trek rider at the very least is at least three twenty nine down. And I'm just wondering what happened. It- from the coverage or from from the what we have of the race we know that Trek Segafredo really led it into that bottom climb that Ruth Winder uh was setting the pace at the bottom of the climb she would have been riding for Elise Longaborghini and Lizzie Dagnan and what we kind of learned at La Course is that Lizzie is she was either like playing super coy at La Course or she's just not there in fitness yet. And based on today, it seems like she's just not there in fitness yet. Elise Langaborghini, I'm a little confused about that one because she came into this race really flying. I heard from from Ruth before the race started that my preview and my predictions were way off because Elisa was going to beat Anna Vandebregen, but clearly that is not the case. And I, I honestly don't know what happened. But when they hit the eight kilometers to go, there was already basically no Trek Segafredo riders in the group that that Mm. was there on the climb and the climb was 15 to 17 kilometers long uh somewhere along there so it was a really long climb but basically kind of similar to what nathan was just saying about like pay disparity and how it makes it so the cluster of women that's at the top of the sport there's a massive gap between them and the rest of the peloton no one wanted to go in a break today because of that final climb. Like there was no action in the first nine eighty three kilometers of the stage. There was one group before that went off the front and got a handful of seconds. But other than that, it was the, the stage basically was just like a nice little coffee spin into the base of the climb. And then, and then Anna Vandenberg and just rode away. So I think that the race was raced poorly for that to have been the case, but also we don't know what happened because the Giro Rosa or Giro Donne is there's, there's no live coverage. (laughs) They still haven't sent out the official results and it's been two hours since the race ended. And, uh, and I feel like we're, 10 years 10 years ago trying to cover women's racing and this is the biggest women's race in the world so it's really upsetting how do you market that when you don't even have results two hours afterwards and how do you sell sponsorship when you might get eight kilometers of individual time trials up the 17k mountain i mean that's that's the weird thing about this race is that it seems like no matter how bad they are at actually holding a race they're they always still have the name Giro d'Italia so they always still get the hype of being the only women's race that's anywhere close to a grand tour even though they do not deserve that title and they do not deserve the the coverage they get and they do not deserve the hype that they get it's they don't deserve to be the biggest women's race in the world but and they've proved it today I mean we went into the race and Amy and Lauren and I talked about how the race has been taken under uh, has been taken over by new ownership and that they promised live coverage and they, there was a lot of hope. And we were all three very skeptical about our hope, but we still had the hope. 
And today we were texting during the stage and all three of us were like, we should not be surprised about this, but, but they've just proved everything we've said on the podcast, right? And it's really, really unfortunate. It's so frustrating. I feel like they were able to get away with it for so long. I mean, you, you could hear horror stories about this race from like a decade ago and they were, but they were able to get away with it then because I don't want to say it was the only game in town, but there were so many, there were fewer top tier women's races at that point. There were fewer women's races that were doing it right, that were getting coverage that just every aspect of it was firing on all cylinders. And now I think it's really thrown into relief a lot more when you see something like the women's tour or the way that Flanders Classics, you know, is able to actually put the women's races on TV. Like what a novel concept. And then you look over at this race that should have been for years, the biggest race in women's cycling. And you say, oh yeah, this is actually really poorly run. Maybe though, they won't be able to keep getting away with it for that much longer. I mean, they've already the, the UCI already bumped them down a level last year, and I think within the Peloton and, and in, you know, in the media, that's it's they're getting a lot of criticism finally. So I, I think maybe this could gradually change now that we have other races to compare to and say, oh, look how well XYZ races is doing this when the Girodana is not. I think it's an opportunity in some ways because they have done such a bad job that there's an opportunity for somebody to come along and be better, right? And we have the first women's Tour de France happening at the end of the men's tour of France next year. It li- like literally it's going to start the day after, right? I don't know how much faith we have in ASO to, to do a, a really good women's stage race, but the appetite is there. I mean, the reason why we try to give the Giro coverage as much as we possibly can is because the appetite is there. And we know that, you know, a really hard stage race for the women's Peloton is something that is needed in the sport. And we want to try to, you know, talk about it as much as we possibly can. They make it really hard for us as media to do that. So my hope, fingers crossed, is that with the addition of the Women's Tour de France next year, that a lot of the focus gets taken off of the Giro, right? I mean, I can I can absolutely see a scenario next year in which all the major teams are doing the Women's Tour de France and the Giro Donna is close enough to that that they just don't go. That they just don't don't go to the Giro next year, right? I think that's that's entirely possible, and that's what is the sort of either the end of the race or the kick up the ass that the race needs because they they've just been floating along. They get the best riders in the world. They get SD Works. They get Trek. They get Anna Van der Bergen. They get the best riders in the world. They get coverage, and they don't necessarily really have to work for it at the moment because they're the only game in town. They're the only stage race that's like that. If there's another one, then there's some competition, and maybe we end up with a better scenario. What, what? ASO has already had a huge impact already for 2022 in the Women's World Tour. Is the fact that, like, Cofidis has just built a million-dollar team for next year because there is a Tour de France for women. There's no other reason. I mean, I'm sure that they've been interested in that kind of area for a long time, but the timing to me doesn't seem like a coincidence. And... And I think we're already seeing the kind of value in what this is going to be. And I'm, I actually have a lot of faith in what the ASO is going to do because they can see it as just another way to get people watching television. And that's what cycling, the, at least the commercial side of it, is all about. And, um, you know, we've, we've had this chat before, Kaylee, about how, you know, Team Legion in the States is what's rejuvenating the scene there. And we're going to see other teams just lifting professionalism. And I think what the ASO has done by announcing that this is actually happening what it turns into at the start might be different to what it turns into in five years time and i think that space can only grow 
but it's already had a huge influence just even in the kind of like rider market that there is a million dollar team that just appeared because there's a new Tour de France. And there are multiple teams adding to the the Women's World Tour next year. Jumbo Visma will also be making that leap up to World Tour. So there's going to be more teams that are required to pay their women not a livable wage, but at least a minimum salary. And so the it's growing, like everything is going in the right direction. The problem here is that according to the US, UCI calendar for next year, the Giro Donne is going to be world tour next year again. And hopefully there are stipulations with that, that they do need to cover the race properly in 2021 for to be able to be a world tour race in 2022. But if it's a world tour race in 2022, people are still going to go and it's still going to get the attention and it, it will continue doing what it's doing. Another thing they've done this year was when the new organizer, when the new organize organizers, why can't I say organizers when the new organ, organ, sorry, when the new organization took over the Giordano, renamed it, said they were going to have live coverage, hyped up the race. When they did that, they also announced that the prize, money was going to be doubled from 8k that's right i'm sorry 8k for the overall winner of the race they were going to double it but today it was uncovered that they actually didn't add to the prize purse purse at all so whoever wins the giro donne makes 8k i would i would just like everyone to sit with that for a second because i think we know like what a guy who wins a stage of the tour de suisse makes which is not even a grand tour and this is the only quote-unquote grand tour that women have and it is an absolute disgrace to the sport of women's racing and and people don't realize that that eight thousand doesn't get split between six riders there's another ninth well so there's another rider which is the staff all get a split but then even before you see that money it gets taxed in the country that it's from at the taxable rate of a non-resident which is about 40 percent so all of a sudden, that 8,000 goes down to about 4,400 divided by seven or eight. So the riders who win the Giro d'Italia walk home with about, you know, maybe 500 euros. And that's for the winners. We should almost just flip the script and say the men should go to the prize pool of what the women get and they should get what the men get because we're all at least on a minimum salary, which is a livable wage. And so many women's riders are just not. And it, to me, it's just really not fair. I'm nothing but angry about the Giordone right now, if you can't tell. <laughs> Could tell. I also think it's warranted. So, do we have anyway, diarists today? Yeah, should we hear from Ruth? See, Let's hear uh, from we Ruth. Can, then we actually know, like, maybe what happened during the day. Let's find out. Let's find out what happened. <laughs> Fuck, this race is such a joke. Hi, everybody. Um, coming at you from the car after stage two of Giro Rosa. Um, I hear there wasn't very much coverage and I'm not really sure I can tell you that much because I was pretty dropped on the last climb. Um, but we as Trek-Segafredo didn't have the day we were hoping for. Elisa just didn't have the legs today and you know that happens sometimes. She's pretty disappointed but we are still proud of her and we'll make the most of the rest of the Giro and do what we can. Coming up we'll have lots of opportunities I'm sure to get more results. Um, 
yeah, I don't know. I had a good day in pink. I it was actually quite fun to be dropped and just wave at all the people, even though some people seemed really excited to cheer for the pink jersey, and some people seemed a bit confused why I was so far behind the lead, but that's okay. Um, yeah, that's all I got. Yeah, so today um, I predicted that it was going to be one of the GC days, and it, yeah, turns out that I was right. Um, it was actually very calm start to the day, not many attacks that went, which I was surprised by. Um, there was just a four rider move that went just be, just between the Cat 3 climb that we did and then the main climb, but unfortunately that got caught just at the bottom of the main climb, which wasn't ideal for Elise, who was in that group. But yeah, from there I just tried to do what I could to, to pace it, but it was a hard climb and side of the groupetto I think proved that there was probably 40 or 50 of us in it in the, by the end so yeah it was a good sized group um yeah I just got to the hotel after a longish transfer and yeah about to have dinner just had a massage and then it's time to watch the football football's coming home <laughs> moving on moving on no, it's okay. I need to take a chill pill. A little bit of it. Being opinionated. I know is good. you love it when Being I get opinionated. Opinion. Particularly in this, like who's who's gonna argue with you? Yeah. Who's on the other side of this? Like I guess the people that run the Giordana are probably like, Oh, it's hard to do live coverage or No, it's it's not. It's twenty twenty one. Like we we've figured this out. Every single other bike race on the planet has figured this out. It's it's not that hard. It's just kind of expensive. Which is the reason why they're not doing it. But it's not even, like, it's not even that expensive. Fucking just don't give them any prize money and put that 8K towards making, having live coverage. Get... Everyone would be better off in the long run. Yeah, I was just <laughs> going to say, they would, abs- that would, they would have a field day in the media if that happened, so. I mean, I'm sure that they would, and I don't think that's actually a good idea. Plus, I think 8K would buy you about six minutes worth of live coverage. No, that's, that is an over-exaggeration. It's super, it's expensive. Yeah, but You're talking six figures. N- yeah. Not when the live coverage is as shitty as it was today for the Giordane. It's not that expensive. They would have done a better job if they just had Robbie McEwen sitting on the back of a motorbike filming it with his phone. You don't want that, though. That's what I'm saying. It's like, to do, to do it properly is quite expensive. But, but, like, that, that's their job as race organizers, is to then go sell the coverage to a broadcaster, which then pays to broadcast it. Like, it, it's a business... And they're running it poorly. And if they were running it well, then they would have money for live coverage. Because other 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 races are able to do it. I mean, I don't know. There, there's new owners over there, right? Maybe it just gets sold again. Maybe RCS buys it. And, and the Giro d'Italia actually owns it. Which it's important to note that the Giro d'Italia, the men's Giro d'Italia, and the Giro Donna are two completely separate events and not owned by the same company. RCS could buy it, would do a much better job. Flanders Classics could buy it and do a much better job. Granted, they're in Flanders, not in Italy, but still. But again, I'm, I'm, we don't need to go around in circles on this again. We're all on the same page. I'm just hopeful that, that the inclusion of a hopefully well-run, hopefully well-broadcasted, certainly more wealthy event next year, and by that I mean the Women's Tour de France, I, I'm hopeful that 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 gives the Giro sort of the kick up the I ass say, that it needs. I'm not confident, but I'm hopeful. I'm just going to say one thing about the ASO and running the women's Tour de France. One thing, and then we can move on. 
I would also be super excited about that if Kristen Prudhomme had not said this, basically that this is a charity case they're putting on for the women's Peloton and they lose money in all their women's races. And if it doesn't work, then they're going to fold it. I would be super excited about the women's Tour de France. I would be, and I am. I'm excited for the women. I'm excited for what it's going to mean for the sport of women's cycling. I'm excited for the racing itself, but I am not excited about the ASO's mentality when it comes to having women's races and how they treat women's cycling. I'm not excited about that. Well, that's your job as the media to prove them wrong. Make that value. I'm going to do my best. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be there. We'll have a team there. Yeah. Now I'm done. Now we can move on. <sighs> that was good, Abby. I appreciated that. That was excellent. Thank you. Before we go into tomorrow's Tour de France stage, this week's episode is also brought to you by Orange Seal and their industry-leading tire sealant for all manner of road and dirt conditions. Orange Seal was founded on the premise of eliminating unwanted stops on the bike. UCI cross-country pros and world tour teams like Israel Startup Nation choose Orange Seal because the difference between a one-minute roadside stop for a wheel change and a self-sealing puncture could be the difference between winning and losing a race. Whether you're an expert, beginner, or somewhere in between, you'll benefit from Orange Seal's proven ability to seal faster and bigger punctures. Orange Seal has multiple sealant formulas proven to work in a variety of terrain and conditions. Orange Seal tire sealant is compatible with most bike tire systems, available online or at your local bike shop. Thanks to Orange Seal for sponsoring today's episode. Now, let's keep this one short because we're long already today. What are we looking at for tomorrow's stage, Dane? Yes, tomorrow's stage, another day in the Alps. There are five categorized climbs on the day. Early Cat 2, then a Cat 1, and then around the second half of the stage, things get really hard. Uh, it's it's going to be an ore category climb around the midway point, a second category climb to follow, and then a really long first category climb up to the finish. Uh, and the, the stage, it's at altitude. Uh, it's going to be the first real day at, at, at pretty high altitude in this tour, so you never really know how that, how that could affect the various GC contenders. I mean, some of them are, are quite good at altitude. Unfortunately, some of those guys who are really good at altitude are already many, many minutes behind Tadej Pogacar. Uh, it'd be great if they were right up there, but we've already it'd spent the whole... be good for Carapaz? Yeah, I think it would be good for Carapaz. It'd be great for Egon Bernal if he weren't not at the race, uh, but we've talked about that at length already. Anyway, so I think the, the altitude could have an effect on the race. I think the, the stage itself, I wouldn't be surprised if it were uh, another breakaway day. Just, again, I, I don't think UAE has much reason to control the race. It's just going to kind of... Comp- come down to who gets into the break you know if a, if a rider who's only you know five or six minutes off of gc does get up there we could see uae try to work hard to bring it back um but uh, i'd love to see that yeah that's that's what's going to make this race interesting you know from here i gotta go for yeah, it yeah keep in yeah. mind there hasn't been a rest day yet so you know there are a lot of dead bodies even in that front group today so you know it only takes maybe one percent better than someone else and there can be huge gaps so i think tomorrow for me definitely uh excites my interest in clipping into the show pretty early but uh you know col du pre is is one of the most famous climbs i actually think in that region and having that at the midpoint in the race i think we're going to see things really fire off early whether it's from the breakaway or the main group or at least we're going to think see things really thin out so again i think tadeg there's a good chance that he's actually isolated very early on tomorrow and uh, for me, it's a breakaway day, 
from the start. And uh, there's also one other little tidbit of interest in the race is that there's a sprint bonus at 32 kilometers after the first climb. I don't think we're going to see Cav get it. But for me, the most exciting jersey so far in terms of interest and competition is actually this green jersey because it looks like Cav is the is the strongest in the sprints. And he actually went and picked up the sprint bonus yesterday in the stage where you would have expected someone more like Matthews or Sagan to have done that. Um, so we're seeing a big gap with Cav opening up. But I think something like tomorrow is actually going to be of interest for guys like Matthews and maybe even Philipson. Before we make our picks, let's learn a little bit about the region from Jose Bain. This is stage nine and we return to Tignip for the second time because at the first try we never made it to the finish line because of a landslide in 2019. Egon Bernal didn't win his first Tour de France stage but of course he did win the overall classification that year. Early on in the stage we climbed the Côte de Domancy. That was the most important climb in the 1980 World Championships. With two and a half kilometers of climbing at an average of 9.4%, the Côte de Domancy was done no less than 20 times. The 1980 edition is therefore one of the hardest, if not the hardest, World Championships course ever. The rainbow jersey went to Bernard Hinault. The Frenchman with the nickname the Badger had an amazing season in 1980. He won a snowy, a cold and very heroic edition of Liège-Bastogne-Liège and went on to win the Giro d'Italia. The Tour de France, however, was a disaster for Hinault. Hinault had won the previous two editions, aged 23 and 24 only, but had to abandon with knee pain in the first mountain stage of the 1980 Tour. He did recover well and, as one of the greatest climbers of his generation, set his sights on the World Championships in his own France. His tactic during the race was a simple one. He started attacking at the foot of the Côte de Domancy in basically every lap from 150 kilometers to go. The peloton got smaller and smaller until one rival remained and he soon also got rid of Italian Giambattista Baronchelli and won the race with a minute lead. In 1981, Hino went on to win his third Tour de France as a world champion, and he added a fourth and a fifth crown in 1982 and 1985. The village of Tignes was built after 1952, because the original village was located much, much lower, but had disappeared under the water when the dam of Tignes was completed. And that dam was built there to generate a hydroelectricity plant. Once every 10 years, the lake behind the dam, Lac du Chavril, which we pass at 5k from the line, is drained for maintenance and the remains of the old village become visible again. In the new town of Tigne, that was rebuilt in 1952, you can find the church, or well, at least an exact replica of the one that now sits at the bottom of the lake. Tigne is one of the highest ski resorts in Europe and therefore the season is long. You can basically ski all year round in the glacier of La Grande Motte. The resort was built in the 1960s in a style they then deemed modern, but nowadays they try to fix that look just a little bit to make it more modern. 
Tinian is also a favourite place for altitude camps for many athletes, including the national rugby team and many pro cyclists who we now can find in this Tour de France. And, and that's great for the rest day that's coming up, Tinia also boasts the highest golf course in Europe. So when the riders have some time on their hands on the rest day on Monday, they can do a few holes there. All right. Picks, picks, picks. How much is Tade Pogacar going to win by tomorrow? <laughs> well, if it's a break, hopefully not. <laughs> At least the breakaways give us no. two different storylines on every day. You know, that's good. That's a good way to stay interested. Picks for tomorrow? Who, who do we got? Who do we got? Who's going to make that breakaway? I'm excited about my pick, so I'll go first. Go for it. I'm going for the Higita Monster, Sergio Higita Ooh. from EF Education Nippo. What 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 what's behind that pick? Um, he finished thirty some minutes down today, so had a relatively easy day. He's no threat on GC. No one's gonna mind if he jumps in a jumps in a breakaway. He's a pretty savvy climber and uh, not too bad at descents. Won a stage of the Giro last year. Pretty sure. I don't know. I feel good about it. I also felt good about a ran today. So. I think I'm. I think I'm bad at this game. Oh, two EF riders in a row. <laughs> Shoot, it's too late. It's too late. I've decided. Just, just lean into it. Lean yeah. into it, Dane. Who do you got? Yeah, you know, I picked guys who actually made it into the break the last two days, which is hard enough. But then they didn't. Uh, they didn't quite pull it off. And now I'm worried that if I pick, I think Guillaume Martin's a great pick. But now, they, I mean, he just spent all day in the breakaway, so I feel like it's going to be pretty hard for him to get out there again. Uh, let's go with Bakamolama. Go with the Trek rider. He's eleven, more than eleven minutes behind Pogacar, so maybe he'll get some leeway to go up the road. And uh, you know, Molama's got a nice little finishing kick. Surprisingly, I think you know, people don't realize how fast he is in a finish, and then things do flatten out at the very, very end uh, of stage nine. So, yeah, why not Bakamolama? As usual for this kind of thing. Actually, Nathan, what do you got? Who do you got? I've got I've got two like orange pigs and one red hot pig. All right. My orange picks first is Alaphilippe. He never lets a bad day get to him, and he can turn things around in two seconds. He's that kind of rider, and he's no threat onto GC now. And for me, I think he's absolutely going to be motivated to try to take a mountaintop finish tomorrow. Then someone who I always think is quite exciting, who's shown some good legs this year, also out of GC, but is still strong enough to be kind of a contender, is Chavez. I think he could be a bit baller, but actually, I'm with you, Dane. I'm going with the old man tomorrow with Molama. We haven't seen anything too wasteful of energy yet, and he's like an old diesel truck. It just takes a while to warm up, but then once he's flying, he's on. I think that's a pretty good one. Uh, I, as always, I sort of go to the for a day when you you know you're looking for a breakaway tomorrow. Who in the Gruppetto today didn't have to be in the Gruppetto today? Right, who was just sitting there tapping away, thinking of tomorrow's stage, and in that group, I see Alejandro Valverde. There's an interesting one. I see Warren Barguil. There's an interesting one. I picked Valverde for today, actually, which turned out to be extremely wrong. But I just, I just, I just was swinging for the fences today. I think 
tomorrow, actually. Pierre Roland. Oh, shoot. I was also going to pick that. Ah, I know. Crazy talk. Hasn't done much in a while. But, you know, this would have been his day a couple years ago. So, I'm going with it. Going with it. Pierre Roland for tomorrow. Wait, I have to fact check corner myself really quick. Okay. Abby, we have a we have a corrections corner for the end of the episode yeah, today. Yeah, Sergio Higuita did not win a stage of the Giro last year. I was thinking of Caicedo. Shoot, mm. it's fine. I'm sticking with it. That'd be cool. He won stage four onto uh, the big volcano. Stage three in Etna. Yeah. In Etna. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Our picks. Get them into your cycling tips fantasy league. And we'll be back tomorrow with the second stage of the Alps in Tour France. Bye, everybody. Well, that was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> then we can all we can all jam in.